Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome into another edition of Mile High Magazine. I'm Murphy Houston. Really a very special guest with a real hot topic, not only in Colorado, but nationally. We're going to talk about the opioid overdose situation, what's going on in Colorado, what's happening. And I'm proud to have and excited to have Andres Guerrero, who works for the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, has since 2009. He's the manager of Opioid Overdose Prevention Program at the State Health Department, which focuses on reducing deaths from opioids, including prescription pain medications and heroin. His areas of interest include drug user health issues, disease prevention, policy development, and working on solutions to Colorado's opioid issue. Andres, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. And I, I'm so excited to talk about this topic because it's an awareness we need to have in Colorado. People are going to be amazed at what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised. Well, and to have one fellow just taking care of that would tell people alone that there's, there's an issue in yeah. the state of Colorado. Yeah, there is an issue. So let's talk about what Maybe people don't know what opioids are and how do we get addicted to opioids? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so opioids are a class of medications that derive from the poppy plant. Um, so there's a poppy plant that originally used to go around the Mediterranean Sea, used to grow there, and now it kind of grows all over the place. Um, and so these medications are really good with controlling pain. Um, and so one thing I wanted to do really quickly was to kind of go over a list, if that's okay. Yeah, do it. Yeah, to be so people know what's in their exactly. medicine cabinet, see if that's an opioid. So um, there's kind of the way medications are named is a little funny. So there is the standard name or the generic name, and then each company makes its own type, you know, uh, with a name specifically. Sure, sure. sure. Um, so one of those is uh, oxycodone, and so people might have heard of that as oxycontins. Yes. Right? Right. Um, another one is uh, oxycodone with acetaminophen, and those are Percocets. People have heard of Percocets. Com- common names. Right, yeah. Um, hydrocodone with acetaminophen, that's a Lortab or Vicodin. People have heard of Vicodin. Vicodin. Yeah. Um, another one is codeine, and that one just is called codeine. Sure. Um, tramadol um, is another one. Then fentanyl. People have heard a lot about fentanyl recently. Recently, yeah. yes. Um, hydromorphone is also known as Dilaudid, right? And then... Um, we have Demerol, methadone, and morphine. So all those medications are opioids. So when you're hearing about this opioid epidemic on the news, on the radio, about this is the medications that really we need to be looking out for. A lot of folks don't realize that they have those medications in their home, in their medicine cabinet, and they don't realize they're opioids. So it's real important that folks know which ones they are. Right. And, and, and how, how do we become addicted? I mean, how does that happen? Yeah. So for a lot of folks, it starts because they've had some sort of uh, injury. Um, or maybe a surgery, and they're prescribed some of these medications for that pain after that uh, injury or after that surgery. But what happens is that the folks um, may start taking too many of those pills, um, and then they end up getting addicted to it. So there's a strong physical addiction um, from these medications, especially if you're not taking them as your doctor prescribed. Uh, Another thing that's really interesting about opioids is they're really good at killing pain, physical pain, right? They'll be able to deal with that physical pain a lot better. But what happens is people also realize that they actually work on emotional pain, right? And so if you're not feeling good, like you're kind of depressed or something like that, these medications will actually make that feel a little bit better in the short term. And then what happens is people are taking them because of that, and then they end up addicted to them. Sure. And once they get one and then another, and then they probably increase the dosage to feel better or whatever they need, and then then it's you're hooked. Yeah, and that's a really interesting thing interesting thing you just said, because absolutely, as you take more and more of these, you need more and more of them to be able to feel um, like you're kind of level, like you're normal. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And we know it's a national epidemic. We hear the president talking about it. Mm -hmm. How is it in Colorado? It is an issue here in Colorado. Um, It really looks, it it depends on what you're looking at as far as um, what, uh, what piece of the puzzle you're kind of looking at. So for Colorado, Um, We're kind of in the middle of the pack compared to the rest of the states. We're definitely not doing as bad as like the Ohio Valley and parts of Appalachia, where they have a very significant issue. Um, We're also not doing as good as some other parts of the country. So we're kind of in the middle. Okay. Um, And I do have some uh, statistics here um, that I think would be interesting to folks. So um, from 2000 to 2015, uh, nearly 224,000 Coloradans misused prescription drugs. And between those same years of uh, 2000 and 2015, there were 
10,552 people who lost their lives to drug overdose in the state, um, specifically with uh, prescription opioid-related overdoses. Over 10,000. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. And what would you think it is now? I mean, now it's three years later, it, it, then some of the numbers might be increasing. They might be, yeah. We're looking at the new data, so we don't have that. Um, when the data comes out, we have to work on it to make sure that it's accurate before we can release it. Um, I think we've seen what we've, the trends that we've seen so far is a leveling off of the deaths related to prescription drugs. But unfortunately, we've seen an increase now in the deaths associated with heroin. Heroin? So, yeah. And so heroin is also included on that list of opioids. It also comes from the poppy plant. Well, and isn't heroin probably cheaper than the pills? Yeah, heroin is unfortunately cheaper than the pills. Um, So in the Denver metro area, you can get heroin, uh, what they call a pill of heroin, um, because they come in these little balloons. Okay. Um, And a little pill will cost you between $12 and $20 on the streets of Denver. For one pill? For one pill. And how long does that keep you happy? Most people have to use two to three times a day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, for people that are using heroin, um, very quickly, it's not to get high anymore. It's just to maintain that level. So what will happen is, as you're taking these medications, your body is very, very efficient, right? And so it says, oh, I don't need to release dopamine into this person's system because they're already getting it from somewhere else. So I'm going to stop releasing dopamine naturally. The body stops. Right. So then you need the drugs just to feel normal just to feel level oh my gosh yeah so you're just putting yourself into a dark cave yeah exactly yeah and unfortunately it's not an easy thing to come out of um like i said there's a strong physical component to the addiction whether it's heroin or whether it's pain pills um the you know the the things that people have to go through to come out of it can be very difficult for both of those not not good and i think i read someplace where it's the heroin situation again is really almost epidemic with seniors in Colorado. Yeah, there's a lot of folks that are using pain pills, and then when those pain pills um, run out or they can't get them from their doctor anymore, um, then they'll start turning to other things like heroin in order to get that, that fixed. Even that older people. Even older people. So it's yeah. not just a youth problem. No, it's not. We're seeing it across um, all age groups, You know, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all areas of the state. There's some very rural areas of the state that have some serious problems with this as well. Um, it's not just a Denver metro area issue. It really is something we're seeing all over the place. That's heroin. Yeah. And, and you mentioned when you were running down the, the series of heroin-type pills, or rather opioid-type pills, you mentioned fentanyl. Explain why that's so popular all of a sudden. Yeah, so a lot of people have been hearing about fentanyl recently in the news. Um, the reason for that is because it's manufactured in uh, illegal labs around the world, and what they're doing is they're putting that fentanyl into batches of heroin. And so what happens is it's making the heroin, because the heroin by itself, um, folks are adding that to it to make it a little bit stronger, but they don't exactly know how much they're putting in. So in some places, you might have heard, there's places where they'll have a massive overdoses, so many that they can't keep up with them. Um, And it hasn't happened here in Colorado yet, but unfortunately, we, you know, it's something we're keeping an eye on because it could happen here where people start to put fentanyl in the heroin and the folks that are using don't generally know what's in it. Um, and wow. they'll accidentally use it, and they use too much of it, and then they overdose. Overdose. Yeah. And what do you look for if a person is going into an overdose? Are there, there's got to be signs. Yeah, there definitely are signs. Um, the first thing you're going to notice is they have kind of slurred speech, um, so it may sound like they can't talk, right? They can't right. communicate. Um, they may actually, what, what they call nodding out, where the person kind of their head will go down, and then they're not responsive. So you can call their name. You can touch them. They're not going to respond. Um, another thing you'll notice is that the, in lighter skin people, the nail beds and the lips will start to turn bluish. Really? Yeah. And then in darker skin people, they'll actually t- start to turn a little grayish or ashish, um, kind of ash colored yeah. darker skin people. So those are all symptoms that somebody might be suffering from an overdose. Another thing you want to look for is do they have a pill bottle next to them? Is there syringe not by them? Things like that. Um, so just things to, to think about. Another way you can tell is if you take your knuckle and you rub it on somebody's sternum, that chest bone right in right. the middle, yes. that hurts a little bit, right? right? So normally somebody would respond to that. Um, if they don't respond to that, you know, rubbing of the sternum with your knuckle, if they completely don't respond, they don't try to move away from you, push your hand away or anything like that, then something's going on. It could potentially be an overdose. And what do you do? So for overdoses, the first thing you want to do is you want to call 911. So it's really important that you get uh, paramedics there as soon as possible. Um, the other thing you can do is rescue breathe for folks because um, the way that opioids work, they work on three different systems in the body. And so one of those systems actually takes care of things like swallowing 
and coughing and breathing, all the things you don't think about, like, you know, uh, doing, you just do them. Right. Yeah. So it affects those pieces of the, of the brain. And so what happens is that folks will actually stop breathing. So you've only got a few minutes for somebody, if they stop breathing to keep them alive, you've got to do rescue breathing until 911 arrives. And then there's a medication called naloxone. And naloxone is basically an antidote to opioids. And it doesn't matter if it's a heroin um, you know, dose or right, if it's a pill right. or anything like that. Naloxone is something that will basically knock the opioid off of the receptor and keep it off for a limited amount of time. And that gives the person enough time to start breathing again and all that sort of thing. But you don't want to just give them naloxone and stop. You may want to make sure you call 911. It's really important to make sure paramedics sure. are there because naloxone will last a certain amount of time. But if they took a lot of opioids, then it could actually come back. They could actually overdose again, even though they haven't taken any more. So it's important to know that you have to stay with the people when they overdose. Um, Another important thing to know, too, is in Colorado, we have what's called a Good Samaritan law. So if you're with somebody and they overdose and you call 911, they want you to stay with that person so that they don't pass away. Um, You won't get into any trouble for calling 911 if somebody's overdosing. Um, you won't be charged if you have, you know, a small amount of drugs on you or, you know, things like that. Is that right? That's true. Yep. So the, and the reason for that is because what would happen before, before we had that law, so people freak out. They said, oh my gosh, this person's overdosing. I was maybe just using with them. Right. I'm going to call 911 and then I'm going to run, right? Because they don't want to get in trouble. And so what would happen is while 911 is trying to figure out, okay, what apartment in this giant apartment building am I going to? Or where is this person at? Sure, sure. All it takes is a few minutes for somebody to pass away, unfortunately, if they're not breathing. Man, that's yeah. scary stuff. It's very scary. Hard to control that. Yeah. And what's the state speaking of controlling doing about that? Are they? I understand that doctors are getting worked with and they're more aware of the yeah. dosage they're prescribing. Yep. Yeah. So we've got a lot of things going on that I work with at the health department. I've got a small team of folks um, that work with me and we're dedicated to working on this problem specifically. So one of the things that we're doing is we're making sure that doctors are using what's called the prescription drug monitoring program. So what that uh, program is, it's a program on the computer that the doctor can access. And let's say that I went to a dentist and I had a tooth out and they gave me some Oxycontin for the pain, right? And then later on that week, I twist my ankle and I go to my primary care doc and they bandage me up and then they give me some Oxycontin too. Maybe I don't know that that's the same pill, Right. right? And they should have checked to make sure that I didn't already have a prescription for that. Because if I don't know, then I could take one for my tooth and turn right around and then take one for my ankle, I could overdose right there. That's how easy it is. Wow, you never think about that. Yeah, yeah. So we want to make sure that uh, the docs, you know, prescribers, physicians, providers of all types are making sure that they're using the system because it just tells you, okay, you know, um, this patient, Andres, already has a prescription for this opioid, so I don't want to give him another opioid on top of that or I don't want to give him uh, what's called a benzo because benzos interact badly with opioids as well. That can lead to overdose as well. So we just want to make sure that they're checking that system. So what we're doing is we're funding uh, different groups around the state to train doctors to make sure that they know how to access that system and to make sure that they're using that system correctly. So it's just on your computer, right? It's on their computer, yep. So it's on the doctor's computer. should be easy to do. It's relatively easy. We're working on making it easier, though, because one thing we've heard from the docs is they said, you know, I'm busy. I don't have a lot of time. You know, they're, they're, they're busy people. And so we want to make sure that we're making that system as easy as we can for them to use. Well, we're talking with Andres Guerrero. Did I say that right? Yes. Ah, bingo. <laughs> I've known him for, I guess, a couple of months now. Yeah, it's been a few months. And, and he does a great job. He works for the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, has since 2009, manager of opioid overdose prevention. So I noticed my wife had four big surgeries last year. Mm-hmm. And the doctors, of course, prescribed some pain. They highly recommended just take Tylenol if you can do that, this mm-hmm. guy. But his prescriptions are like two tablets, three mm-hmm. tablets. And is that fairly common now? They're just really taking the control that we need? Yeah, that's very common, actually. And that's actually a good way. Um, that tells me that the doctor that you worked with actually has had some education around this. Because a few years back, it wasn't uncommon for folks to get a bottle of pills. Oh, I absolutely. Know, yeah, I had a tooth out maybe f- six years ago. They gave me 30 Oxycontin. Oh, I didn't use any of them. I didn't oh actually gosh. need any of them. I just took a few aspirin and I was fine. So that tells me that that physician that you worked with has absolutely gone through education. And we don't want folks to not be able to access these medications because they are important for pain management. Right. Right. But we want to make sure that we give them for a few days, maybe a week, and then wait and see. And if they need more, then they can get more. 
but we don't want to give them a month or two months worth all at once because that's where the potential for um, overdoses and for issues of addiction, that's where they really pop up. That's where we see that. How many pills does it take for it to become an addiction? Is it different in everybody? And- you know, addiction is really different in everyone. Um, and one thing that they found is uh, there's still a lot of discussion about this, but part of it is biological, they think, at this point. And then the other part is kind of the way you were raised, you know, so that whole nurture versus nature thing. Really? It really seems to be a little bit of both. There are some people who are predisposed to addiction. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's alcohol or, you know, marijuana or pain pills, you know, or heroin. Um, some folks are just going to be more predisposed to have issues of addiction. Um, so it's really different with everyone, but for these particular uh, issues of opioids, um, it seems to be that even those folks who may not be predisposed still can have issues of addiction if they're taking the pills for too long and they're not in physical pain. Right. Um, so if they start taking them beyond what the doctor told them to do, and that's why it's really important to work carefully with your doctor to make sure that you have the information that you need. Well, obviously so. And you mentioned uh, just a short time ago about buying heroin on the street, $20 a pill. Can you do the same? If your doctor cut you off of your opioid, can you find that commonly just on the street? You can find opioid pills, but they're not as common as they used to be. The thing with opioid pills, though, is they're expensive. You're probably looking at $60 to $80 per pill. Per pill? Per pill. Well, you can get 90 of them for $60 to $80 from the doc, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. Wow, that's... Yeah, yeah. so the price goes up when it hits the street. And they're all different. They all have different strengths to them. They all have different, um, you know, there's there's all those different ones I listed before. Each one of those is going to be a little bit different, but generally you're looking at, you know, $60 to $90 per pill. And you don't know where they're made or who's making them? Or... Yeah, sometimes they're counterfeit pills that yeah. are coming from, yes. like, yeah, places like in China where people will ship them in. And um, other times it's just folks that have extras and... Um, you know, leave them out or, you know, leave them in the medicine cabinet and forget about them or give them to a friend or give them to a neighbor, you know, that sort of thing. And then they get out in the streets, unfortunately. Do they ever get bad? Do the pills, if you get, should get rid of them after 30 days, if otherwise they're, they're ineffective or? Not necessarily ineffective, although they do, they do have expiration dates. Yeah, but the right. reason that we really want to make sure that people are disposing of them properly is so they're not hanging out inside of your medicine cabinet. And then you know, your kids or grandkids could get at them? Exactly, yeah. Kids, grandkids. Um, you know, we've seen cases where folks actually were having uh, like a contractor come into a house or somebody to work on something, you know, all sorts of reasons. Um, there was even issues of people going to open houses, uh, real estate open houses, and for the express reason of stealing pills out of the medicine cabinet. So when oh people gosh. get really addicted, it's very, very difficult to gauge, um, anticipate what they're going to do to get those pills. It's almost anything. Now, when you order meds from, like Canada, I guess that's a big place, do you have to have a prescription to get those meds? How does that work? I mean, would opioids be easily available from a mail order house in Canada? They shouldn't be easily uh, available. Uh, Generally, for folks that are on health care insurance here in the United States, you have to go through a U.S. pharmacy. Um, There are people that get uh, mail order medications. But as you said earlier, it generally is coming from uh, not necessarily Canada, but people can order this stuff from China and, you know, uh, places like that. And you don't know what you're getting, you know. Yeah. It, it could be the opioid that they're telling you. It could be something completely different. Um, and so for a lot of these kind of mail order pharmacies, um, you know, it's, it's hard to tell the ones that are legitimate from the ones that are illegitimate. Um, so I think it's generally safe to go to the prescription, you know, the the pharmacy where, you know, you can get your prescription filled uh, just normally. Safe way to do it. It's a very safe way to do it. Now, I heard, um, not recently, maybe a couple months ago, that some people that have this problem, the Mm -hmm. opioid addiction, they'll go see their doc. The doc will say, nope, you're not getting any more from me. You've given enough. Mm -hmm. The doctor turns his back, and they steal his pad of prescriptions. Yeah, that happens sometimes. And then they fill out their own and go to the drugstore, and the drugstore fills them out. Yeah, sometimes that happens, unfortunately. I think that's getting a lot more rare. Um, because pharmacies will check now with doctors, especially for opioids. They're also checking that prescription drug monitoring program. So they can check that program and see what's going on with that person. If they can see if they've gone to a bunch of different pharmacies to try to fill a prescription, um, they can see, you know, how many prescriptions they've had over time. So they can see that information now. So it makes it a lot less likely for a pharmacist to fill that. But it was a, it was an issue in the past where people would steal pads. Yeah, right. a lot of the stuff now is electronic. So it's a lot more difficult to do that. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly is. And, and and if you have opioids around the house, you're thinking, oh, I'm done using those. I don't need them. I, I should get rid of them. Should you flush them down the toilet? No. We ask that you don't flush them down the toilet. So there's a few different things that you can do with them. Um, 
Right now, there are little packets available um, at some pharmacies that you put the pills in there and then you seal the packet up and it mixes those pills and there's a chemical reaction where it creates a, a kind of a inert version of oh. it. Yeah, so it kind of makes the pill useless, right? Um, you can do that and then you can just dispose of it in the trash. Um, the other thing though, I think the better way to do it is we have uh, set up around the state uh, of Colorado, all around the state of Colorado, we have these green bins that are medication take back bins. And those are gonna be in different pharmacies and in different police stations. Um, so it's gotta be either a pharmacy or a law enforcement office. Sure, sure. Um, and people can just take those medications there, just put them in there and drop them. It's kind of like a post office box. You ever seen sure, it? Sure, yeah, metal yeah. Pill? Yeah, just yeah. like that. You throw them in there, you put it in and close it and that's it. No also, questions asked. No questions asked, nobody's checking, nobody's um, you know, gonna ask you for any ID or anything like that. Most of them are available. Um, you know, on regular, you know, uh, or extended business sure. hours, you know, some sure. of them are even available 24 hours a day for some places. So it's a good idea to put them in there because that way you make sure that they're taken care of. So what the state does with those medications is we bundle them all up and then we send them to a special incinerator out of state. And so those are taken care of. You don't have to worry about those medications ever making it out on the street. That's the safe, easy way to do it. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah, it's totally free. So, Andres, how, how are the pharmaceutical companies handling this? Because we had talked earlier before we got on the air here that I heard the people that make oxycodone, $3 billion they made last year? Yeah, they make a lot of money. $3 billion. <laughs> It's a lot of money. And that's just one that's opioid. One, yeah, that's one opioid. But don't they assume some responsibility for the crisis we're in across this country? Yeah, the pharmaceutical companies have really responded to this um, differently. Each company has done different things. We are seeing them put um, some funding towards education. Um, they are not prescribe or not pushing these to the doctors the way that they used to. Um, unfortunately, many years ago, uh, some of the companies were actually telling doctors that these medications were not addictive, um, and that just wasn't correct. It wasn't true, um, and unfortunately, a lot of people didn't get the message that these are addictive. And now this is where we find the situation at. So we're definitely hoping that the pharmaceutical companies will step up. Um, and help to you know educate providers and make sure that folks are prescribing these things in a responsible manner. Well, you wonder when there's money involved, <laughs> you wonder unless somebody in Washington gets their act together and starts putting the pressure because the pharmaceutical lobbyists are powerful. Yeah, it's a very powerful lobby. It is. Yeah, not helping the cause. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. So. What about the crisis in Colorado? Name some of the things you're doing for awareness with your group, because I didn't realize you had that many people working in your office. Yeah, we've got a few of us, yep. So we're a group of five in my office. Um, we work very closely with a group called the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. It's a very long name. We call it the Consortium for short. Sure. The Consortium is based out of the University of Colorado School of Pharmacy, and so they have a bunch of different work groups um, and we work with them on all these different work groups. So they have a whole work group that's just working on heroin. Really? Right? A whole thing, yep. And we've got folks there from uh, local public health agencies. We've got folks there from law enforcement. We've got folks there, you know, sheriff's departments, DEA agents, um, all that. So all those folks are working on that specific issue. And they have a bunch of those kind of work groups working on different things. So the main thing that we work on at the state health department, though, is provider education, like we said. And we want to make sure that folks have good factual information because the internet is oh, kind of a mess well right you know that Murphy. Like, i mean really it's really hard to find what's true and what isn't right well as the president says a lot of fake news of fake on news, on yeah. the internet about stuff <laughs> holy cow and 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 what do you do do you go to schools and educate or do you how do you how do you educate the people so what we found is very uh, useful is to use the internet, right? Because even though there's a lot of misinformation on the internet, if we can get folks the correct information through the internet, it's an easy way. Everyone's got a smartphone now. Um, so I did want to talk about one very important website where people in Colorado can find Colorado-specific information that is factual, that is science-based on the opioids, and that is takemedsseriously.org. That's easy to remember. Yeah, takemedsseriously.org. And if you go to that website, it's going to give you uh, different information about how serious the issue is here in Colorado. It can give you some fact sheets. Um, it also has some really useful tools. It's got little tools like uh, things you can print out on a card so you know what all your medications are. You can write all those down so you don't forget them. Well, that's important for all of us. 
Because how many times you go to your doctor and say, well, what, what meds are you taking now? You go, I don't remember. Geez, it's a lot. And what dosage? Right, yeah. You exactly. don't remember. Yeah, there's so many. So that makes it nice and easy. They have some, some things like that. The other thing they have on that website, which is really nice, they have a list of all those take-back places that I just described oh, to you. So if you're nice. wondering to yourself, where are those at? Like, is there one in my community? You can go on to takemedseriously.org, and you can look at the map and find out exactly where it has, where, where it has those drop-ins. And we have them, those drop-off locations, in almost every county in the state now, even the ones Great. that are way out there. I think we're only missing four or five counties at this point. And is this the issue, the opioid situation in Colorado, is it worse than the big town or the rural areas? Is it as bad? You know, it's really interesting because I've heard from people like in Cheyenne County. I've heard from people over on the Western Slope, uh, you know, on Fruta. Um, I've heard from people down in Cortez. This really wow. is an issue that is touching the entire state of Colorado. Um, you know, I've heard from folks in the San Luis Valley. Really? Uh, yeah. I've heard from people, um, you know, in Otero County. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. And, um, and what we're trying to do is make sure that people understand what they can do, right, um, to help. And so what they can do is to make sure they get rid of those medications once they're done with them. It's tempting. I understand they're expensive. You may want to keep it. Maybe I'll need it later. Maybe my friend needs it. Maybe my wife right. or my kid needs I, it. You I've know? heard that. Yeah, because they're expensive, Yeah, right? You don't want to waste money, but at the same time, it's dangerous. So you have to make sure that you know that once these medications are prescribed to you, they're really for you and they're for you to take exactly as the doctor told you to take them and not any other way. So don't hang on to those extra pills. Get rid of them, right? That's one thing right. folks can do. The other thing they can do is to get educated by going to websites like I just described. Um, and then there's also opportunities to get involved in your local community. So we have a lot of folks working on this all across the state. Um, sometimes folks have a little extra time in their hands and they maybe want to volunteer. You can do that, right? People can reach out and they can make sure that they are able to work with other people on the same issue in their community. Because every community is a little bit different. Sure it is. Sure yeah, it is. Some communities, the pain pills are more of an issue. Some communities, the um, heroin is more of an issue. Um, so every community is going to be a little bit different. We want to make sure that folks know that there are other people working on this. And if they feel like they can have that time and that energy, we would love to have their help. Well, do you guys have a separate site from the one you told us about information for volunteering or how you can get in on board to help with this problem? Yeah, there. Um, the the website uh, that I described earlier, the takemedseriously.org, is put on by the Colorado Consortium. And the consortium uh, is that one that has those different sure, work groups. Sure. So it, anyone can be on any of those work groups that are interested. Yeah. And that information is on the website so they can reach out to them? They can reach the, out to them. Phone numbers yep, and phone stuff numbers that they and can use? and all that sort of stuff. And you probably encourage that. Absolutely, yeah. The more people we have working on this, the more people we have aware, um, the better it is. Yeah. And one, we're almost running out of time. It goes by so fast. <laughs> I was always curious about if you have to have a pain pill, mm -hmm. is there one you should ask for that might not be as addictive as another kind? Or are they all yeah. pretty much the same? You know, really, um, they all have the same process in the body. And so they all have a risk of, of addiction. Um, I think the most important thing is whatever pain pill you're given, uh, make sure you're taking it exactly as prescribed. And then also make sure that if there's any changes in your, um, you know, if you notice that I'm having trouble sleeping or, right. you know, if I didn't take that pill this morning, I'm starting to feel a little nauseous. Talk to your doctor. Don't keep that in because that those might be the first signs of addiction. And you don't even know it. You don't even know it. Yeah. You're thinking, OK, I'm just feeling a little queasy because I didn't take my pill. That could actually be the first sign of somebody actually being addicted to opioids. Scary stuff. Yeah. And it's a big problem. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? What direction do you think the country is going to go to help? solve this problem so i think um we're hearing that the new federal budget might have some increased funding to work on this issue um so if that happens we'll be able to do more every state will be able to do more um and the other thing too is i think as more people learn more about this issue that folks are going to come together continue to come together because they're already coming together but really work on this common cause um, and be able to make some positive changes on this um, i think that really folks have to reassess what they think about pain you know it, it may not be realistic to be completely pain-free you know? well no i mean i hear when you're in the hospital they say they teach you to stay on top of pain right because you don't once pain gets out of hand then you'll be on the opioids exactly but you yeah. might be able to stay on top of the pain without the opioid is how i understand is that right yeah, absolutely there's other things that folks can do and there are times when opioids are needed and necessary and absolutely we don't you know uh, want people to not take the medications they're prescribed. If you've been prescribed an opioid, absolutely take it. 
you know, and talk to your doctor. But you can also ask your doctor about possible alternatives. Some of those things might be things like uh, massage therapy, physical oh. therapy, right? So those types of things, physical therapy is really good for relieving pain, um, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So, and also just some of the over-counter pain medications are very effective. Andres, I appreciate you coming in today. This is Thank you. very valuable. Give us the website again with all the information you've been talking about. It's takemedseriously.org. All right. Andres Guerrero, who works with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Opioid Overdose Prevention Program. Sad we have to have it, but glad you're here helping us. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. And thank you guys for listening to our Mile High Magazine. We'll talk to you next week. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. The creator of the musical Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda is among the national arts professionals, contributing his voice, advocating for the arts in schools with the organization Americans for the Arts. This group will host their annual convention in mid-June in Denver this summer. Among the themes their attendees will explore in sessions includes cultural inclusion, community involvement and engagement, and partnerships strengthening arts education for youth. These focuses are also on the active agenda of the Denver Center for Performing Arts. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. On this edition, we continue catching up on DCPA's progress and their work in other new, fresh directions. The CEO and president of the Denver Center for Performing Arts is Ms. Janice Sinden. She is our guest again on this edition. Doing a lot in the community. We have a new community engagement team at the DCPA that are figuring out how we don't just put a play up, but that we engage the community throughout. Talkbacks, um, experiences afterwards, community meetings. Uh, again, going back to American Mariachi because it's on the stage right now. We had a, a final dress rehearsal and did a partnership with the Mexican Cultural Center. Opened mm-hmm. the doors, 500 people came, people that had never been in a theater. I stood with one woman the next morning. And she yeah. grabbed my forearms and was just crying. My father has worked every single day of his life for 66 years and never thought he would be in a theater. And he really? um, he spoke out during the production. Uh-huh. because he was so moved by what he saw yeah, it yeah, was yeah. so personal to him and that's what we want you know we need people all people to stretch and um, invite someone bring them along and um, is that the key the the invitation with a lot of them is that they've never been asked and we're asking now it's a variety of things it's do they really think that the content is um, relevant to them is it authentic who wrote it what story are they telling is it my story my time is valuable I work a lot is this where I want to be um, and and especially when it's a, a community I mean you know especially with some um, folks they want to bring the whole family and that can mm-hmm. be expensive and so we're trying to figure out ways in which we can make it affordable accessible content relevant exciting a um, little bit controversial when it needs to be but that we're having conversations that spark conversations in the community about things that are real to the world that we live in and um, and I think it's happening. Is, is that the key? I, I, I know, sure. I know, I know. You're not a playwright, mm-hmm. and you're not a producer. I am. I've only been there a year for a year <laughs> and a half. Right. But is that the key that audiences in theater mm-hmm. want ownership and more of a personal connection? I think some. I think there are uh, many patrons that, especially those that have been lifelong lovers of the theater, they don't need to have a personal um, attachment to the content. Some love to come and be surprised. And it's so foreign and different than anything they'd ever been exposed to. So I think that some folks, maybe for the first or second or third time that they come, it needs to feel uh, that they are being um, acknowledged or valued in the content on the stage. So we're trying to catch people wherever they are and make sure that our, our um, programming and content is diverse. And um, we shake it up and surprise them, make them laugh, make them cry. And doing some things during the summer to do exactly that instead of having the summer not totally off, but. Yeah, you know. no, that's a great point. And this past summer, we were so excited to kick off a partnership with the Museum of Contemporary Art. Yeah. They have had a program for a long time called Mixed Taste. And so we're using our space to invite people down, you know, have a, a beverage and a salad outside on the Galleria before um, two diverse com- um, leaders come together and talk about everything from football to podiatry. And then they riff <laughs> off of each other. And we've had some pretty fascinating um, facilitators from Susie Q to Bianca and they come in and they do a little slam poetry in there and yeah. we're exposing folks to things that they haven't seen and and we're learning a lot about what excites. When the um, 
who are they? The Hamilton Building people. The Denver Art Museum yes. was doing their Friday night stuff. They had a mm-hmm. couple of things that you did not expect. I went one evening and they actually had wrestlers down there oh, staging excellent. a wrestling event <laughs> and That's how great. they went through it. And it was like a dance, yeah. you know. Right. And people were sitting there just mesmerized. Mm-hmm. So taking those type of risk, going in directions you haven't been before, the cliche is out of the box, but there's got to be a better one for that because I don't think you're in the box at all when you're coming up with something new. The box hasn't been made yet. That's right. And yes. so and so to do it on stage is, is, is really, really uh, exciting. Yeah. Um, the other thing you were talking about youth before is that because of the decline in arts education in schools, you've been stepping in there, filling some of that vacuum. Mm-hmm. And even even with STEM uh, events, now they're, they're putting an A in there to right. make them steam. That's right. And it could be because of some of the things that organizations like yours have been doing to fill the vacuum. When people are now saying arts is the kind of thing that helps keep kids in school. It sure does. And, 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 and what DCPA is doing is doing exactly that. Yeah, we really recognize that if we can take arts into the classroom, Uh it makes it more dynamic and more exciting. We've had a partnership with one uh, sponsor that said we want to make sure that learning about tectonic plates is actually really exciting. So uh, Patrick and our our education department you made sure that this. they knew that wasn't something they were eating off of. That's right. right. They're like, what tectonic plates? But when you give a teacher a tool to say we're going to make this really dynamic and really engaging, and they can do it year over year, people look forward to learning about science. They look forward to learning about something that otherwise might have felt like it was, you know, a task more than enjoyment. And if you can marry the two, it's really great. So we we welcome those partnerships. And your high school playwriting because. Mm-hmm kids who may not be good writers and say, well, maybe I write occasionally, maybe I will. They see a play and they say, I can write that, really? Then they're upping or wanting to increase their ability to read and write. That's right. Just from wanting to create a play. Yes, and we love that we're able to marry our high school playwriting competition with the New Play Summit so that those um, audience members and artists and um, writers from all over the country can sneak over and sit with these kids that wrote a one-act play and um, who knows where their career is going to go. And some of them said, I just started with a story and my teacher said, you have a voice. You have a story to tell, and how it goes, and then learning the process, and um, you never know what they're going to be. Um, and and even if they're not a playwright, they will probably always be a theater goer. And we love we love. That. And they start envisioning themselves on a stage. It helps them with public speaking, even if mm-hmm. they don't become an actor or or an actress as well. Theater for young audiences now. Some would say, some parents might say, well, you know, is that kind of like Disney stuff? Is that kind of like, what? Is it more like Leonard Bernstein used to do back in the 50s, you know, with uh, concerts, young audiences, and explain what the instruments were doing? Uh, How do you have that frame? So if I'm a parent and I want to run a green kid or grandkid, how do you have that arranged so that it, it, it speaks to where they are at that young age where they're all concrete sequential? That's a great question. So Theater for Young Audiences was really a new, inspired effort by the DCPA to say, how are we bringing in our littlest children, making sure that they get excited about um, what we do. And so it's really targeting um, three-year-olds to third graders. Mm -hmm. And this year we picked uh, The Snowy Day and Other Stories by Ezra Jack Keats. And it's about a little boy and his experience through the seasons and friendship and understanding how to be an obedient child and listen to his parents. (laughs) and all the things that go into being naughty when you're little. And so you watch these littles come into the theater and they just kind of stack up. We have a a children's theater called the Conservatory in our building. And so lots of the little ones are on the floor on their knees. And and because the story is pretty simple, but it's also really rich, they um, have a very immersive experience. The actors are running all over the stage. They're dressed as children. So I think the children really relate to them. We had 19,000 kids come through in October. Whoa. You know, about 200 at a time. They're there for 45 minutes because so recognize their attention span, and we don't want it to be something that feels like it's being done to them, but rather with them. We have talkbacks afterwards so we can take them, and they can talk to the actors and ask yeah, questions. Yeah. We're doing everything that we can to put a copy of the book in the hand of the child, and we invite the parent. We also recognize that if um, it's going to be something that a child has an opportunity to do, the family needs to understand and appreciate it. So we're providing as many opportunities for parents to come 
come with their children and experience. Uh, so is that's what you, you, you're saying to parents, if you have a creative child, mm-hmm. the most important thing they can do for that child is to expose them? Expose them. Go with them. Love them. You know, and, and yeah. talk about it afterwards. You know, read the book. Go to the library. Pick it up. Uh, it's not necessarily to go take acting classes, not necessarily go take art classes, not necessarily to, to do that. It is to give them the exposure first, mm-hmm. and then the kid will pick which route he or she wants to take. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We had another wonderful experience this year with um, – the oily cart. Uh, we partnered with the Lincoln Center and a company out of London, and they came in. and It's not conversational. There isn't really talking. It's all interacting. And you know, mm-hmm. you see a child who's afraid to leave the mom's lap. And they were small groups, like twenty-five kids. And you know, the the little girl gets off the mom's lap, and she's standing next to her. And then she leans forward and touches another little child. And then she's in the circle with the actors, having mm-hmm. this experience. And and that's what it is. It's connected with community and having a moment. Denver Center is the big performing arts dog on the block, period. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's just putting it in terms the audience can understand. Yeah. You know, we have our regionals with Arvada, with Lone Tree and that, that are doing wonderful jobs too. But you are saying, okay, folks, we're the big dog on the block. Let's act like it. Let's be it. Let's impact our community in a positive way. You know, not separate, but be a part of it and, and, and really embrace who we are and what we do. And we love our faculty in our education department as well yeah. as our actors having an attachment to the DCPA, but also being on the stage in another community, whether they're going up to Greeley or Colorado Springs or down to Pueblo and up to Pine. We love them traveling the state and being present in other communities and, and bringing that attachment back. And now you're working on the big project downtown to try to... Uh, not only renovate the facilities there, but in some cases try to connect it more to the 16th Street Mall. Sure. There had not been a coordinated cultural plan. And yeah. so he a lot, a lot of listening and a lot of engaging um, communities to say, what are you interested in and what are some goals we should be setting? Sure. That happened. And simultaneously, he tasked arts and venues with the next stage, which really was the same, mm-hmm. a way to say, how do we ensure that the Denver Performing Arts Complex is accessible, affordable, engaging, and live? and exciting. And um, so that work continues. It's complicated. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, there's eight theaters on the, the DPAC, and we've got to be mindful of what disruption might do to the theater goers and whatnot. But I think the vision is strong. The other thing I have to ask you about before we go, Women's Voices, the Women's, Vo- yeah. the Women's Voices Fund, because March is a Women's History Month. And I know That's you're right. going to probably be doing something about that, but it's very important to talk about. Sure. So the Women's Voices Fund was established in 2005 to foster the work of women playwrights, who you may know only account for 20% of the plays being produced in America today. And so we are so thrilled that we have a $1.5 million fund where we can um, invest in women playwrights and help them move uh, their plays onto a stage anywhere. And we're so excited that even this past year, we had Smart People by Lydia Diamond and directed by Nataki Garrett. A Christmas, Christmas Carol adapted by Richard Hellison and directed by Melissa Rain Anderson. The Great Leap will be up. Um, well, it's actually up now. It's so exciting. And Lauren Yi comes from San Francisco, a yeah. young Chinese playwright. Amazing. Um, these are the types of relationships that we want to have with playwrights, women playwrights, and moving forward. And then it pairs with um, the um, the women with attitude. Each. Mm-hmm. Attitude. Yes. We have a big event. Those hats. Yes. <laughs> They're sure interesting to you see. Can, um, you see women walking down the street and wondering what happened. That's but... one of the times a whole bunch of African American women show up at That's that right. luncheon down there and they're wearing some stuff right out of Essence Direct. We've yeah. But from. it's money all raised to support yeah. our women playwrights. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really great. At the end of the day, for you, yeah. there have only been, uh, what, three CEOs mm-hmm. of the organization. Mm-hmm. What mark do you want to leave behind? Mm, you'll make me cry. Uh, I really want the um, the actors, the artists, the team at the DCPA to feel a sense of unity and connection to each other and to the work. And I want that to be felt by the community and the connection between our team and the larger uh, um, community is so important. This is a really difficult time in our nation and our world. And I hope that we can be a place where we're not afraid to have tough conversations um, to inspire um, tabletop conversations, things 
that are happening on our stage um, should take be taken home by a person that sat in the theater and say, I'm sorry I treated you that way, or I didn't understand, or I had never seen it through your lens. And so I feel like we have to be a part of the, the national dialogue and turn it around, um, get to a place where we're more respectful, we're more cognizant of um, the impact of our philosophy and our words and our presence. And um, yeah, and I really think we need to be mindful that technology is amazing, but there's nothing better than being in a place with a lot of other people and feeling human um, contact human contact. And so that's my hope is that we ensure theater is relevant in the lives of as many people as possible. We sincerely thank Ms. Janice Sinden, President and CEO of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, for joining us again for this edition. Do note, the Colorado New Play Summit continues next weekend with a full schedule that's open to all to attend. Information is online at denvercenter.org slash events slash Colorado New Play Summit. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Happy Sunday to you. I'm Melissa Moore. It is Mile High Magazine. Excited this week to talk about Make-A-Wish Colorado, a great organization. Stacey Winslow, who is the event coordinator for Make-A-Wish Colorado, is here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start with a little bit of the basics. Explain for people who maybe heard about Make-A-Wish, but they're like, what is that? What is it exactly? It's great. We have a very, very simple mission statement that together we create life-changing wishes for children with critical illnesses. I have to tell you, my favorite part of that mission statement is the word together. There's so much togetherness Mm -hmm. that comes into making a wish happen. Um, It's just very powerful. And I think we all have seen the stories on TV or heard the stories. If you have a child with a terminal illness, how do you get them qualified? Sure. I don't even know exactly how to ask that question. Right. And it's a question that people are scared to ask, I think. Mm -hmm. And let me first start by saying that many of our children are not terminal. The the catchphrase is a critical illness. Now, every wish goes through a medical review process. There is medical eligibility involved. Um, We want people to understand that if your child is facing a critical illness, they deserve a wish and Make-A-Wish Colorado wants to grant that wish. We hear from a lot of medical professionals, obviously. Mm -hmm. A lot of our referrals come from them. The hospitals have a great pulse on who's eligible and some, you know, are are very obviously eligible. The cancer patients, the cystic fibrosis. Others are a little more nebulous and so that's when um, we really depend on our medical community to do that. But we also hear from parents and from wish kids themselves. Sometimes wish kids will hear a story of a child who has the same condition they did and it gives them something to relate to and they can give us a call and say I think I might be eligible for a wish and those are kind of fun to get sometimes too. I was going to say I I like the fact that you just said that about it doesn't have to be terminal. Yeah and part of that is that you know modern medicine is amazing and more and more children are surviving um, conditions and illnesses that used to be considered terminal and for that we have doctors and nurses to thank. Yeah, we sure do. And it is true that a critical illness, I mean, changes the whole family, too. It changes everybody in the family. And I think sometimes that's part of the most impactful part of a wish is to step back and see, for me especially, to see how siblings are affected by Mm -hmm. this. Because we do involve the entire family, mom, dad, and siblings. It's just knowing for these brothers and sisters that someone cares about their sick brother or sister And that we're there for an experience for the entire family to relieve stress for everyone. Because when mom and dad have to focus a lot of their time and attention on the sick child, siblings can get left behind. So it's a family process. Right. And I know I do a lot of work with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And you hear that from the families all the time, how an illness affects the entire family and about the siblings. The siblings are the healthy kids who are, yeah, they're not meant to be left behind. But you know what? The sick child is obviously going to get a little more of the attention. That's just how it is. Exactly. So I love what you're doing at Make-A-Wish. So tell me this. How do you determine a child's not just eligibility, but then granting a wish? Oh, it's the most fun process. I said it's like having a magic wand because it's like the keys to the candy box or the candy store. Um, We really sit down with the child and start by just having a normal conversation with them and discussing some of their favorite things, their favorite foods, um, places they've heard about, books they've read, pictures they've seen, and really trying to get to the heart of what their one true wish really is. Like, 
we had a little boy recently who told me he wished to go to Australia. And I, I wasn't sure how he'd ever even heard about Australia because I mentioned kangaroos and koalas and he didn't know anything about kangaroos or koalas, huh. but he liked alligators and they don't have alligators in Australia, but they have crocodiles. Yes. So his wish actually was to have an alligator experience. So he ended up going to Florida, got to wrestle with alligators and name an alligator and go out in the Everglades. So it's really dissecting what it is about their um, the things they like, what they're passionate about in the things they like and, and allowing them to sort of speak and formulate their own opinions. And we, we do that without the help of mom and dad when we can, we obviously mm-hmm. have some kids who are nonverbal. Um, but it's just truly magical to see it when they come to the realization of what that one true wish really is. I love the thought that you put into that. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot more detailed. I think I always imagined the child just walked in and was like, I want to meet, you know, if they were a basketball kid, Kobe Bryant or whoever it might be, but not really understanding the work that you put in to make sure that their one wish really is their one wish. Right. And it's funny, we do have kids who come in with a you know, predisposition to something and they might come in and say, I want to meet Kobe Bryant. And then they realize there are 50 other kids who want to meet Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm. And when they hear there could be a waiting list to meet their hero, then they start thinking, well, maybe I want to have a basketball experience and maybe the Denver Nuggets can do that just as well as, you know, instead of getting an autograph from Kobe Bryant. So right. we try to help them understand that we can really craft an experience, not just the wish is an experience. It's not just a moment in time. It's a process that builds up. It's something that unfolds before them and allows them to really use the wish process as a sort of therapy. Mm. It's not medical therapy, but it's um, mental uh, well-being, mental health, and using the wish experience to get through a lot of the treatment and things they have to do. And that's our job. And and you said it's a, it's a wish for the whole family, an experience for the whole family. It is an experience for the whole family. And if you're just joining me, we are talking to Stacy Winslow, who's the event coordinator for Make-A-Wish Colorado. How many wishes has Make-A-Wish Colorado granted? You know, before I left the office, I wanted to look up the exact number. So I'm going to guess now that it's around 5,075. We wow. just granted our 5,000th wish. Uh, it was a little girl who wished to be a Power Ranger. (laughs) So she wanted to be the blue Power Ranger. Uh And it was a wonderful experience because um, we actually had the real red Power Ranger come to town and teach her Power Ranger moves. Um, And she got to fight crime all around Denver. But it was, again, it was very specific. She didn't want to meet the blue Power Ranger. She wanted to be the blue Power Ranger. I love that. Isn't that fantastic? So 5,000 wishes in our 35-year history. That was my next question is how long has Make-A-Wish Colorado been around? 35 years. 35 years. Yeah. And it's it's kind of an interesting story for people who don't know. Our founder and CEO, Joan Mazak, founded Make-A-Wish Colorado with the money that she had been saving to um, get a liver transplant for her own daughter. And her own daughter sadly passed away shortly after meeting a local radio mascot. It was a chicken. And Mm -hmm. her daughter, Jennifer, loved that chicken mascot and got to meet her before she passed away. And so Joan used that as the impetus to, you know, provide that kind of experience for other Colorado children. What do you hear back from parents who have experienced watching their child have a -a make-a-wish? You know, it's so touching, the messages we get and I'll try not to be emotional because I just got one of these a couple nights ago. We uh, we just granted a wish for a local girl to be famous. It was just a very casual wish. And when I first thought about it, because you, you know, it, the wish seemed so simple on its face, but what does it mean to be famous? Mm-hmm. And for her, it was um, people wanted to take her picture. People wanted her autograph. And when I sat back and dissected what that really meant, it meant she didn't have cancer. It meant she wasn't oh. a little girl with no hair. It meant people didn't look at her differently. They looked at her like she was a celebrity and they wanted to get to know her. So we just transformed their lives for about, a, well, a weekend. There were little things leading up to it. And she finally um, was relaxing one night in a robe with her name em- embroidered on it at the Four Seasons Hotel downtown. <laughs> I love and it. she said, I finally feel famous. And a couple of days later, her dad sent me a text and said, you've really changed all of our lives. You've become part of our family And we just don't have the words to thank you for what you've done for Gabriella. Mm -hmm. It's become um, her identity to be stronger and bigger and bolder than cancer was for her. And there's you can't put a value on that. Every almost every family without exception comes back and says that the process is transformative. 
mm-hmm. for the for the entire family. That oftentimes children who are in treatment blaze through treatment so much easier, you know, the rest of the process of treatment. And for those that we do lose, because that's a sad reality right. in, in this this kind of work, um, what we hope is that we've created lifelong memories for the entire family to hold on to. And it's something, again, that they've experienced together. And so as a unit, brothers, sisters, mom, dad, grandparents who are witnessing the whole thing have those memories for a lifetime. Well, what I love in hearing your story, and I'm sure so many people are with me right now listening, is how is the thought behind it and the fact that you were able to say what she doesn't want to just be famous. What is it that she wants? Yeah. And really dissect that wish and realizing she wants to be known for something other than the little girl with cancer. Well, and it's it's interesting because she even said, if people can hear my story and know my name, they might be able to help fight cancer or help other people too. So we actually, we have a great program at um, Make-A-Wish Colorado called Kids for Wish Kids, in which we match high schools with wish kids and their stories. And high schools work to grant the wish of this one child throughout the week. And so we paired Gabby and her wish to be famous with Mountain Vista High School and Highlands Ranch. Yeah. And I just left their big um, reveal assembly this morning. And in the course of a week's time, they raised $158,000. <gasps> To grant not only Gabby's wish, but 20 other wishes as well. And so for those kids to pour their heart and soul into giving Gabby what she really wanted, but then to say, and guess what, Gabby, people now are going to know your name because you've helped give 20 other children a wish. And that's what, that is the thought. So thank you for acknowledging that. It is the, there's nothing happens by accident. There's a thought process behind all of it. And we know that these certain kids have these stories that will connect with the community mm-hmm. and allow them to have more power and to, to get their own message out. That chokes me up. I just got goosebumps <laughs> as you are. I just thinking about, and, and once again, if you go to Mountain Vista High School, kids, parents, thank you guys. That is an incredible accomplishment. It's pretty that incredible. a ton of money. Yeah, pretty incredible. We have the most successful Kids for Wish Kids program of any other chapter. Colorado um, will this year probably raise over a million dollars from Colorado high schools. That's our goal this year. We came very close last year, over 950000 last year. That's phenomenal. There, I think the next closest state might be $350,000. Oh, far and away. Far and best. away. And yeah. that's a credit to our office and the great people who run that program. Yeah, and the great people of Colorado. Absolutely. You the know? kids of Colorado. Well, and that's the thing. The kids of Colorado, I mean, that's the kind of kid you want to raise. Exactly. Is a kid that has a heart for other people. Absolutely. And obviously, Colorado parents are doing a great job of that. Uh, for other people who are listening right now and want to get involved, not just high schoolers, how do they get involved and support Make-A-Wish Colorado? There are lots of opportunities. And the easy way is you can go to our website, which is colorado.wish.org. And there is a tab that says ways to help. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, you can make monthly donations, but I always tell people it's your time, your talent, or your money. The time that it takes to put these wishes together, the talents that it takes. Sometimes kids wish for room makeovers. If you can paint a room, we need your help, yep. your volunteer services. If you can make a special, beautiful cake for a child for a send-off party, we need your help. If you have connections for sports tickets, and you know, there's always something that people can do. And there's, um, there's always a way to help these special kids. We also, of course, do big events and big fundraisers, and that's always a, a fun thing that we get to put on. So we look forward to that. We'd love to have people support us at our events as well. I think that's great. Giving people ideas like you have talents, you have connections. Everyone has a talent. Absolutely. All right. So talking about your big events, Wish Night coming up. It's going to be fantastic. When is it? It is Friday, February 23rd, 6 p.m. at the Hyatt uh, Convention Center downtown. It's going to be our biggest and best fundraising night ever because it's very mission focused on our wish kids. Okay. Are there tickets available? Tickets are still available. Um, There is a link from the colorado.wish.org site. And um, if you've ever wanted to see true magic in the making, let me just tell you our lineup, we, um, we are going to follow Gabby's wish actually to be famous from the beginning to the end. And so she'll be making a special appearance, signing some autographs for her biggest fans. But our, the the night is actually called Wish Night, A Night Among the Stars. And though we do have a couple big names there, uh, Joe King and Isaac Slade of The Fray yep. will be there performing. Um, we have some true stars. We have five Colorado Wish Kids who will be there performing for the audience. Everything from sharing their musical talents to dancing. 
it's it's just going to be so special. I was going to say, it sounds like just an emotional, incredible night in the fray. It's um, it's so funny. Because, I mean, the fray, especially here in so Colorado. I'm going to assume, I'm going to assume Joe and Isaac can't hear this right now because I think <laughs> they're both in California. So I'll tell you, I sent them a text and said, I can't wait. I have a surprise for you. And the surprise is, is that we have a wish kid who's on a feeding tube. Her name is Becca. And Becca has gotten permission from her doctors to be off of her tubes um, for two hours a day. And she's using those two hours to practice a dance to a song by the fray um, called You Found Me. Oh, yeah. And she's dancing with her brother, her oh. best friend, and another boy who is the sibling of a former wish child. And um, it's a surprise performance for Joe and Isaac. They don't know it's coming. So I said, I have a surprise for you guys, and I can't wait to show it to you. And the response I got back was, I really hope it's not a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Nope. I said, no, it'll be way better than a puppy. Yes, that's my goal. I love making people cry. So I hope they both cry. Oh, they will. (laughs) That is going to be an incredible night. It's pretty exciting. Once again, we are talking about the big Make-A-Wish. The theme again is stars. Wish night, a night among the stars. A night among the stars. Big event coming up here very soon, February 23rd. To buy tickets for that event, let's give the website one more time. You bet. It's colorado.wish.org. And all you have to do is click on the Wish Night logo. And once again, money, time, talents, all of it, all of it is needed. So go to the website and that's where you can sign up to volunteer as well. Absolutely. Yep. There's a tab for volunteering. Yeah. I mean, you just hear about the stories and I think all of us, if you just tap in, when you said that about cakes, I'm like, oh yeah, there are people that can make an amazing cake. And I'm thinking to myself, what can I do? Exactly. You know, and I think if everybody starts thinking that way, we can help all these kids and these families and do what you said, give them an experience. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Stacy Winslow, the event coordinator for Make-A-Wish Colorado. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for sharing the stories and good luck with your event. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine, a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.